four years, doubling the size of a college campus ministry. Four years of internships with homeless shelters, young adult outreach programs, cross-cultural communities, as well as a stint in building affordable housing. After that, I mark now my seventh year of full-time ministry in the United Methodist Church. And over those 15 years, I've been blessed to serve as a chaplain in hospital setting, to serve as a pastor in four congregations, and even as a director of Christian formation for a time. Each setting was unique. But what was a consistent experience for me was the difficulty in leaving one context for another. It was tough. I remember sharing the news at my previous two churches during the welcome and announcements before worship, and then trudging slowly through the liturgy with a gathering of uncertain and stunned parishioners, wondering what might happen to them next. What followed after that announcement were conversations with confused congregants, file organizing, and transitional meetings with the incoming clergy. One such person is so similar to me, having experience in the same college fellowship, a sense of God's justice which resembles mine, and sharing a love for the neighborhood of the congregation. We run into each other when he's out for a run and I'm out for a walk with Walker. So I feel really bad that I left the pastor's office in that church in such a mess before leaving. It was filled with junk that had never gotten cleaned out. Never disposed of, never recycled, repurposed, rededicated to another church. In the center of that room, there was a heavy wooden desk for typewriting. And on that heavy wooden desk for typewriting was a heavy metal typewriter that had not been used since computers were invented. There was no air conditioning in this office. There was no heating. There were files and correspondence from the 1980s that had no business being in that office. And there were and broken materials and accessories for worship just piled along a wall. What stopped me from cleaning it all out, as I had successfully done in the sanctuary and in the entryways of that building, it wasn't a lack of interest. It was an excess of grief. I saw by the church's mess what it had become as well as what it had stopped trying to be. And I could easily imagine what it may end up being one day. Leaving that office unfinished, leaving that church unfinished, I was weighed down with disappointment. I never liked to leave a job without seeing its conclusion. I never liked to leave work, especially difficult work for the people coming after me. I want to make sure that I've done my best, that I can count this experience among the things that I am proud of, the things I want to remember, the things I want to see as a part of who I am.
And you and I do this every time we share what we do or did for work, what kind of marriage or home life we have, how up-to-date our technology is in our house, how clean it is, how valuable it is, how special it is. And we imply how special we are. We try our best to project an image of stability, placidity, generosity, and control. We try. We try to look as if we are God's gift to the world, as if we are the light of the world, as if we are the most special, the worthiest of praise and adoration, the most deserving of inclusion, acceptance, and love. We try, but inevitably, the suspicion begins to gnaw at us that we are not the light. We are not the bearers of the world's burdens. We are not the saviors we think we are. We're not the creative problem solvers, not the wise decision makers. We are not the capable and handy fixers. We are not the bright and gleaming, well-regarded thought leaders of our day. The suspicion gnaws at us. And if we're lucky, we begin to see ourselves in the light with which God sees us, just as we are. It's a frightening thing to look at ourselves in the mirror. We don't know what we'll find. What if we don't see anything that makes us special? What if we discover we are not made out of sparkles and starlight and everything nice? What if we can't find a reason to be loved? It's that fearfulness of our fragility, our tenuous connection to others, our belonging, which is never fully secured or insured. It's that sense of dread and doom which freezes us where we are, leaves us hiding our faces, burying our eyes into the ground because we cannot bear the thought of being seen for ourselves, of being exposed. And I think that's because we are trained to expect to be rejected, to be deemed unworthy, to be cast out. How often do you go to the grocery store and examine with a frown the produce which does not look good and pleasing to eat? How often do you grimace when you see a car drive by with poor exhaust or unrepaired panels or broken taillights? How often do you compare the success of your sibling to that in your own life? How often do you look at the world around you and assess it for its value to you, its use to you, and only you? So of course, we would expect to be rejected if we were ever found wanting, ever found insufficient, ever discovered to be what we are, which is human. Fallible, imperfect, prone to error, given to selfishness, entitlement, and myopic folly. When will we learn the truth instead? The transfiguration shows the disciples something new. It shows them who Jesus is. He is light, the light of the world, the incarnate word of God, the embodiment of the law and the prophets symbolized by Moses and Elijah. He is the very image of God in the world, God's own son, 
The transfiguration also shows the disciples something true about themselves, something they don't ever want to admit. It shows them that they are not the light. They are not the saviors. They are not the winners, the successful, the ones to look up to, the authority. They are not in charge. They are only human. And facing their own expectations of rejection by the one whom they followed, they buried their heads in their hands, hiding in shame, waiting in confusion for a what word might come next from their teacher. Every day they were taught to cover up their insecurities too, their vulnerabilities, the signs that they might be cause for concern. Every day they grew up learning exactly where they stood in relation to their peers. Every day they knew what tier of society they occupied. Nothing about their lives prepared them for what Jesus would tell them. What word might come next? Nothing about this world could help them to anticipate his acceptance of them, his embrace, his hopefulness, his love, in telling them gently and with compassion to hide their faces no more, to get up and not to be afraid. Jesus calls all of his disciples to follow his words. Won't you do the same? Get up and do not be afraid. Amen.